Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Mark Chaya, CEO and co-founder of perfumery house Francis Kirkjan. And I must admit, this is one of the most refreshing conversations I've had about luxury. Mark was inspired by creativity as a child, but his parents encouraged him to follow a career in business. Having started his career at EY, a global consultancy, Mark made partner in record time at the age of 32. And it was during this time that he met Francis Kirkjan at a party. Francis was already an accomplished perfumer, having invented scents for Jean-Paul Gaultier. But what struck Mark was how little recognition perfumers had, and he set out to change that. And change that he did. In 2009, the House of Francis Kirkjan was born, and it is now a global player in the world of fragrance. Mark, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I wanted to start by asking you what it is you do for work at Francis Kirshan. Hi, Sean. Nice to be on your podcast. Uh, uh, what do I do? I am the CEO and the co-founder of uh, Maison Francis Kirshan. So basically, I run the business. I'm in charge of the strategy, uh, the, the vision, as well as making sure that all of our team work together, align uh, in the right direction. I cover all areas of business from strategy, marketing, finance, product development, and I work closely with Francis on areas such as packaging design campaigns, uh, as well as many other things. How did you get into this? Because I've read that this wasn't your this wasn't your career path. It's true, it wasn't my career path, but I must also confess that I had no career path. Uh, so I got into it into it by coincidence. It was. Uh, through an encounter with Francis at the dinner party. I, at the time, I was doing consulting uh, and business advisory with the global consultancy firm EY. I was very happy with what I was doing, but I was also bored at work because my field of business lacked creativity uh, and a kind of cultural, artistic environment. And Francis, on his side, was lacking independence and freedom. Uh, we met at the dinner party. I asked him casually, what you do in life. I've learned that he was a perfumer behind some of the greatest scents of uh, the second half of the uh, 20th century. And I didn't even know who he was and I had never heard his name before. And so from there, a great friendship was born. We traveled a lot. We collaborated on uh, many business ID, but we both felt that it was unfair for perfumers to be hidden behind curtains, not to exist. And we both felt that we had something to say and something to do in order to repair that. So that's quite an interesting journey then. I mean, it's not your typical, you know, typical journey into the world of creativity, which is where you are now. Define typical journey. I don't believe that, you know, anything typical, nothing is typical. I think that sometimes you have to follow your guts. Sometimes you have to listen to your own needs and and we only live once and i think i'm very blessed to have had the courage to follow my dream and to uh to live life in an open fashion and not in the typical fashion so what's exciting about what you do what drives you because you you seem to be really passionate about your your work and very enthusiastic about life which is um, refreshing what doesn't you know, excite me about what I do. It's a fantastic field of, uh, of, I would call it business, although it's a creative field, it's an artistic field, it's a people's field. 
what excites me the most is to bring joy to our customers. It is to create uplifting, poetic journey through fragrance. What excites me is to tell a story that was untold before. What it excites me and has been fabulous in our journey was to show that there are models that could exist and could be extremely effective that are non-marketing driven. When you look at our fragrance industry, for many, many years, over 80 years, perfumers were working for marketing briefs. They were part of a, of a story. They were just a small aspect of a bigger story that is, you know, finding a design for a bottle, finding a story, defining, defining the scent territory that people wanted, hiring, you know, agencies to do bottle design, uh, working around marketing, working around retail and asking perfumers to create a scented story that would fit all that. And what I find exciting about what we do is that we do none of that. We simply ask one of the greatest living perfumers of our time to express his vision freely like any other artist would do. And that's something very important to understand. Perfumers were deprived of this right to express their talent and their vision freely. So at Maison Francis Cajun, like in any other creative house, if you take fashion, for example, a fashion designer will create, he or she will create their collection several times a year with the support of their team. They bring the vision, they bring the idea, they bring the artistic direction, and then marketing teams, retail teams, and the entire company works at the service of their vision. In fragrance, this did not exist. And through Maison Francis Cajun, this came to life, uh, to a great success, by the way. So that's, that's very exciting. It's also very exciting to work with talented people. We're lucky to have a lot of these talented people working for us on uh, the four corners of planet Earth. We're today in over 805 doors, over 52 countries. Uh, the company has grown, has doubled its size every year since inception back in 2009. So it's like running a different company with the same spirit, but a different company every other year. So it's uh, there's a lot I could talk about, but yes, it's a, it's a very beautiful and exciting journey. I mean, do you do you think of um, the way you engage in you know product development or perfume development as part of a fashion narrative, or do you remove yourself from that and um, describe it as something slightly different? I, I use the fashion example not as something that inspires us or as something that we would use to collaborate or, or create. I use the fashion example simply to show that a fashion designer can exist freely in his own house. The way we create it, it's, it all starts with an inspiration. It all starts with a name. It all starts with the feeling that Francis has and that he shares with me. It's, uh, it's totally driven by his creative genius. It's, totally coming from him. The start point is an inspiration, an encounter, a story that he has. More important is the name. He cannot start creating without having a name. The name would act for him as a frame. I used fashion. I could, I'm now going to use painting. Uh, when you know you are going to paint, you know, a 30 by 30 inch canvas, it's very different than when you're going to paint a 10 by 10 feet canvas. And so the name acts as the frame, as the territory of expression. And Francis cannot start creating without having a name and an inspiration. From there, he starts, you know, composing scent. He shares it with me. Once we both like it and once we both feel that there is something, you know, beautiful about it, that it, that it matches the story that he has in mind, 
we take it to the team and then starts the product design phase where you know we start thinking about the shape of the bottle of course all of our bottles are the same but then they can get a different color they can get a different stopper the artwork on the label is different the box you know the artwork on the boxes is, is different there's the entire campaign filming component there's the entire store design component so all this comes together seamlessly with one beating heart which is the truth the truth of francis's vision and this is very different than a story that is brought forward by by marketing where marketing executives would look at trends would look at what color is fashionable nowadays what scent is selling a lot and start composing around that then would go see perfumers to ask them may you please deliver on a scent that would match all of these components with us it's, it's totally different and we believe that by constantly trying to give customers what they want you end up no longer surprising them and the only way to come up with beautiful uplifting new stories that can generate excitement is to come up with something that was untold and creativity has this ability to constantly come up with new ideas and untold stories and that's what i love about what we do mm. i mean it's it sounds it sounds amazing because the, you know the way you describe the process about you know francis being creative genius you know the artistry i mean that all to me captures this notion of luxury which we often lose and that also goes back to what you were saying about bringing perfumers to the forefront rather than being hidden behind a curtain it's celebrating craftsmanship isn't it it is celebrating the genius of creativity it is celebrating craftsmanship and the love of excellence it is also celebrating life you mentioned earlier you know that life is beautiful life is can be beautiful depending on how you look at it you can always see the ha the glass half empty or you can see the glass half full if i go back to the very definition of luxury since you mentioned that word in your question it is a it is a word that has been totally abused anything can be luxury nowadays you can buy a luxury soap at 5 pounds or 5 euros you can rent a luxury condominium at 150 uh, pounds a week and it's still luxury all about anything now is called luxury we do have and we do live by a very precise definition of luxury we think that we aspire to be we think that we are and we aspire to be one of the most beautiful luxury fragrance houses where luxury stands in the extraordinary the extraordinary genius of creativity the extraordinary craftsmanship and love for excellence and the extraordinary customer journey luxury uh, as a small you know reminder to our audience derives from latin and it derives from three different words one is lux which is the light and i like to use lux as in the light as in the genius of creativity as this beautiful mind that very very few people have that can express uniqueness with unparalleled level of talent and i always remind my team that not everyone that goes to the saint martin school of design becomes alexander mcqueen not everyone that goes to the isipka which is the fragrance school of perfumery becomes you know francis curjean or another celebrated perfumer we have to accept that that a few of us 
have this particular gift, which I define as the genius of creativity. And I go back to lux in Latin, which is the light. Second is luxus. Luxus as in twisting, breaking. It's like twisting your arm or breaking something. What are we breaking? Let's think of it. When, if you are Christian or Muslim or you want to celebrate God and you go to a temple, a mosque or a synagogue, and you look at all of the crafts that is put in it. When, if, when you go to the 16th chapel and you look at Michelangelo's drawing, think of it. Do you need that to pray God? No. Do you need the work of hand and hundreds of hours of craftsmanship to have a chandelier where you can put candles and have light? You can simply put the candle on a piece of wood and light it, and then you would get the same effect in terms of lighting. What luxus means is that you are breaking the simple use of things to celebrate something that is bigger than us, to bring this genius of creativity into life and remind us that, that there is something beautiful about life and about creativity. And finally, there is also luxuria. So I mentioned lux as in the light, luxus as in breaking the use of things, and finally luxuria as in abundance, as in opulence, as in, you know, this beautiful, overwhelming feeling that you have the right to lift things fully. And the combination of three is what I believe in, is, is truly the sense of luxury. For us, it is the extraordinary genius of creativity, which is lux. It is the extraordinary craftsmanship, which is luxus. And it is the uplifting, beautiful, poetic customer journey which is luxury. So that's my definition of luxury. It's amazing because I think you, you're absolutely right um, about, you know, luxury being, you know, it can be anything, you know, luxury chocolate, luxury, I don't know, um, bed linen that's £5.99 or that's from Fret that's £190 uh, for a sheet. Um, and that's, I think, part of the... Uh, Part of the problem I have with luxury today is that, you know, we're losing sight of um, what you call the creative genius because everything isn't, you know, everything's luxury, but in actual fact, everything isn't luxury. Um, you need the creative genius to create luxury. So we have definition. Not only you need the creative genius, but you also need the craftsmanship. And acquiring excellence in a skill requires time and passion, and hard work, and failure, and overcoming failure, and repeating the same gestures over and over and over, sometimes up to 10,000 times to be able to do it rightly. The problem that we have today with younger generation with whom I interact all the time is this very notion of instant reward, where because of social media, because whenever someone does a small video on TikTok or a little reel on Instagram, and they have 10,000 likes and they're just expecting this immediate reward. And they lose sight that talent, excellence requires time, requires hard work, requires investment, requires passion, requires sacrifice, requires dedication. All these values are components of the luxury experience. So no, being on vacation and free is not luxury. It's being on, on vacation and being free. So let us not mix, you know, the, the words, not everything is luxury. I'm happy that some people think that luxury is in the simple things. I would agree that well-being is in the simple thing, that we can live simple lives and be extremely happy. 
But when it comes to luxury, we are celebrating, as you said, the genius of creativity and extraordinary know-how. Without these, there is no luxury. And without these, our maisons as luxury leaders would not exist and would not give joy to our customers. If you can't find someone that masters embroidery, you would kill the couture ecosystem. If you cannot find very skilled perfumers that are constantly trained, it takes years to become a perfumer. It takes years and a lot of work. They have to understand how up to 850 ingredients can coexist in different molecules and different chemistries with different scents to create something that stays together, stands together, hold, is non-toxic, but also generates emotion. And so the learning curve is long. The passion has to be very strong. The ability to fail and overcome failure has to be almost part of you. Uh, but this is our humanity. We carry this in our genes. We carry this in our DNA. Uh, so I'm very optimistic about the situation, not, not so pessimistic. No, and that's and that's amazing. And I think the point you raised earlier is that that you know going to St Martin's or going wherever, you know, not everybody's going to become Alexander McQueen, so to speak. But the point you raise is is a pertinent one in that out of ten students who graduate, you're going to get that one or two who are going to pursue a career and become these these masters in in their craft in whatever they pursue. Creative geniuses are not, um, you know, they're not. A dime a dozen. You know, they're very special, dedicated people who are really interested in a craft. That's not for everybody. I would say I would say two out of, of a thousand rather than two out of ten. Otherwise, the world would be full of creative geniuses. But let us not undermine the importance of all others. Because a creative genius cannot, she or he cannot exist on their own. They need support. They need people, talented people working alongside them and complementing their talent. Uh, we have extremely talented perfumers working alongside Francis. They might not be as skilled as him when it comes to coming up with extraordinary scents out of nowhere, like what he does over and over and over for us. But they are here to help him make the scent technically better. They are going to bring their experience, their talent into so many other fields. And if you go to an art school or to the St. Martin School of Design, if you cannot become Alexander McQueen, you can still work for a couture firm. You can still be part of the journey. And the journey, by the way, would not exist without you because a creative genius on his own is not going to go far in the world that we live in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think, and I, I, in fact, I always say that, you know, we're stronger and better together. People can't really exist in isolation. That working together as a team brings something quite magnificent um, in the outcome. I totally agree. There's no I in a team, there's we. You, you said you um, are involved in the creator process and it, um, with Francis and in the perfume. I mean, how do you start? Um, what's the starting point of creating a scent? I, I am not involved in the perfume creating process. This is 100% Francis's territory. I would act as a sounding board at start. I would act as a, as a sounding board and as a friend and as a partner where he would come to me with ideas and he has so many of these ideas. And what is unique about us is that we genuinely and truly complement each other. We've been working together for over 20 years and what we have is very unique. Uh, I often put it this way. When I have a great idea or a good idea, let's say I have a good idea and I run it by you, I run it by my team, 
it would still remain the same idea. But when I run it by Francis, if it really has potential, then he would help me complete it and take it to the next level where it becomes outstanding. And the same works also with him when he has ideas and he can bounce them here and there. But when we start talking about them and they have potential, I give him feedback that takes those ideas to the next level and to their maximum potential. It's been go ongoing like that for almost 20 years. So the way we operate is he comes to me with stories and inspirations. I can tell you the story of uh, a fragrance duo that we have called Gentle Fluidity. And Francis was questioning himself about gender identity and all of these discussions happening in our society about you know, the notion of gender and the notion of gender identity and how would this translate in perfume? And, and from there, we started talking about the name. As I told you, he needs a name to start and came to us the name of, instead of gender fluidity, came uh, the name gentle fluidity because fluidity can be very gentle and living with your perfume is, is a very beautiful thing. And he wanted to demonstrate that perfume is also a reflection of our society and it's also a reflection of the times we live in. And he told me, I have this idea where I want to compose two different scents that have their own each their own identity with the same ingredient lists. And I love the idea. I love the idea of having two different, totally distinct scents with exactly the same ingredients list where he would tune that list, uh, you know, at different levels in every scent to give them their personality and then offer our customers the freedom to decide whether they think it's a genderless scent, it's a feminine scent, or if it's a masculine scent. And here starts the story of gentle fluidity. And at the end, we have, you know, gentle fluidity gold and gentle fluidity silver. He talked to me about silk, how silk can be perceived if it's cut into a scarf as feminine and how it could be perceived as masculine if it's into a tie. And we started talking about also how at the, you know, in the Renaissance and in the uh, 17th century, men would wear wigs and they would have long hair and they would wear powder and they had high heels and all these were considered masculine. Uh, and, and so it's only a notion of social attributes at a given point in time. So that's the story of gentle fluidity. Uh, another story was Baccarat Rouge 540, where this is a story of a scent that was not supposed to exist. It was back in 2012. We were having a small party at Francis's apartment. He came to me, we were drinking champagne, and he said, you know, we were laughing. And he said, you know, I just talked to this guy. He's the PR person at Baccarat, and, and they're celebrating their 250th anniversary in 2015. And, and I would really love to express the alchemy of making crystal in a scent. And, and I said, listen, let's do it. It's, it's beautiful. I, I love this idea. Let's go meet them. We went to meet them back in 2012. There, there was no interest. Then in 2014, a new CEO was appointed at Baccarat. She came to us wanting to understand better the world of fragrance. We talked about our idea to create a scent for their 250th anniversary. She loved the idea. And here we started with a project to create a scent for Baccarat's 250th anniversary, where this scent would be exclusively limited to 250 bottles. And the name came. And how did the name come? It was a question from Francis to Daniela, the CEO of Baccarat, about their red signature crystal dot. On every Baccarat chandelier, there's a small red crystal dot. And she said, you know, this is Baccarat's signature. We invented 
the red color in crystal through heating crystal to 540 degrees Celsius and adding 24 karat glitter, uh, gold glitter to it. And crystal would turn naturally into the, this beautiful red color. And Francis looked at me and said, Rouge 540, which means red 540. And here was the name. Here was the name. And so that, that's how it, it works. It's a constant conversation. Every cent has a story. Every story is genuine. Nothing is invented. We don't sit there looking at trend, trying to say, you know, this is going to work or this is not going to work. It's a totally free and genuine exercise. That's how we, that's how we work and operate. That's, I mean, those are really inspiring stories um, to think that, you know, there's no real agenda and that it, it seems to be a very natural process. I mean, is is that quite a unique thing? Do you think within um, the world of of scent? It is pretty unique, and and I know it because we have been hiring a lot of very skilled and talented executives in the company that come from other big companies, and they're very surprised in the way we operate. It takes them into places where sometimes they feel almost lost. You know, we have marketing plans, as every company in our industry, we have marketing plans. We have our innovation plans, we build them three years in advance. In other companies, when you decide on a launch in 2025, you put together you know, marketing trends, you do marketing analysis, you meet with customers, you brief agencies that start working on the design, you identify a celebrity, eventually you put together a game plan to release a plan, a scent at a given date. What makes us different is that we start with an ID. This ID is there at the time we write our marketing plans. I know that Francis is now thinking about a new story that he would love to tell and that could potentially be part of our marketing plan in 2025. But what is different with us is what do I do if the inspiration is not yet there and if the creative process is not yet complete? I'm not going to just push on a button and say, Francis, stop creating now. Whatever you've done, you have to stop because we have to release it in September 25. So what we've done in the past to great regret, but at the end of the day, it was a very good decision was to postpone launches. Gentle fluidity, the very scent that I was talking about was postponed first for six months and then in total for 12 months because we were not ready. And this creates also a lot of tension with our manufacturing supply teams. And we've tried to educate them to make this part of our processes, to talk to our vendors, to talk to our partners and explain to them that creativity is an open field that cannot you know, close whenever you want to close it. It's going to close when you know that it's closed. So what we do in order to mitigate those risks is we do have completed creative stories that sit in our drawers that would allow us to fill in our marketing plans whenever Francis is not yet ready. So I have plan B and plan C just to make sure that I would still have something to bring to my sales team, to bring to my marketing team, to bring to my retail network in case the story that we are working on is not yet complete. So it's very unique. I mean, that's a luxury in itself because most companies, as you've seen, you know, they're dictated to by seasonal drops or, or, or seasonal trends and they make sure that they're delivering, you know, every six months or every four months, whatever it might be. I mean, this sounds like um, this is the epitome of luxury in that you have the time to develop uh, the project or the product um, in a way that is not dictated to by, like you've said, a manufacturing run, but rather by knowing that when it's released, it's going to be what you want to be released. Well, this is what 
differentiate the creative process than from a marketing or industrial-led project. Uh, what is surprising is to have to discuss about it. What is surprising is to have to reaffirm that this is the right way in luxury and in creativity. It is as surprising as when I started Maison Francis Gergent back in 2009 with Francis. I had to explain to people that he was a perfumer and what a perfumer was and that we were not a concept, concept a marketing-driven concept, that we were not a niche concept, that we were simply a genuine fragrance house that carries the name of a perfumer. And that inherently was not understood by people. And this is the result of eight years of marketing and and ways of working that has taken taken us altogether away from the, the, the real creative model that we live by and that we celebrate on a, on a day-to-day basis. So for us, it's time is not luxury. For us, time is everything. What is made with time is respected by time. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is is this notion of, of that I think is this idea of um, well, there are two things. One thing is that a lot of people always say to me when I ask them about luxury, they say luxury is time, and I often think that's a cop out because I don't think luxury is time. I think it's what you do with the time that's a luxury. See, we we talked about the concept of luxury. I don't believe that luxury is time or or having time. If luxury is having what you don't have, this is called desire. Yes. This is called craving. Everything has a name. Uh, you know, desire is wanting something that you don't have. And luxury can create desire, but this desire would be more culturally and artistically fueled rather than scarcity fueled. I can deprive you from something, you would want it really bad, but once you have it, you don't want it anymore. But I can also tell you that if you want this, it's going to take a lot of time because it takes time to do it. And once you have it, not only you're going to cherish it and love it and keep it over years, but the more you touch it, the more you play with it, the more you see it, the more you get connected with the hand that worked around it, the more you get surprised by the creative genius that shaped it, and the more you appreciate it. And this is the very notion of luxury. It is providing you with an object, an experience that is fueled with talent and craftsmanship, not just simply fueled with the notion of scarcity and desire. It's, I think it's fundamental to talk about that and to re, you know, to put things at their right place. I'm interested in this, uh, this idea, and that's why I was so interested to talk to you about luxury and the senses, because I've read, you know, a number of interviews where you talk about emotion and people's response to scent. And I'm interested in, you know, not necessarily these tangible fashion products, but how you evoke luxury through the senses. And I was wondering what you thought about about that. We all have five senses and and they all work together for different purposes. They can work together for the instinct of survival, alert, safeguard, etc. But they can also, and that's what's make, you know, this is our humanity. They can also work together for something that is greater, bigger than us, that takes us to other dimensions. And that could be through literature, it could be through arts, it could be through uh, music, it could be through painting, it could be through fragrance. And this is where, uh, you know, this is what I love about what we do is that we pride ourselves to working very hard to give joy to our customers. 
to create those uplifting, beautiful moments, whether they are in a perfume bottle or outside a perfume bottle, because we also do a lot of collaborations with other artists where Francis can, you know, have conversations with someone like Cyril Test and create a scent for a beautiful opera called Salome that is, that is currently playing at the Vienna Opera House, uh, for the dance of the seven veils, this very beautiful, intoxicating, you know, oriental perfume that diffuses in the, in the opera house at, at the very, specific time uh, in the play and it's beautiful or when Francis did installations in Versailles and created those gigantic beautiful installations in the fountains where fragrance would be one part of a holistic experience artistic experience so our senses are also here to create uplifting moments to to bring us to beauty to nourish us to it's all about culture and art why do we need arts why do we need arts? Why do we go to the museum? Why do we look at the Picasso painting and meditate for minutes or for some, some people hours? Why do we look at Caravaggio? Why do we look at, you know, many artists and we feel something when you listen to Mozart or when you listen to even if you like pop music, Lady Gaga or whoever you want, you're going to feel something that is triggered by your senses and that uplifts you. Uh, and this is, this is what is very unique to creativity and to our humanity. I mean, this might be slightly contentious. I mean, do you think fashion uh, today does that same sort of thing? Like fashion it clothing? It depends on which fashion. Yeah. It depends on which fashion. If you're talking about fast fashion, absolutely not. Fast fashion is a machine of copying, uh, you know, others and, and putting things to the market overnight. And, uh, you know, one could arguably talk for hours about, you know, is fast fashion good or bad? It's good maybe because it made fashion democratic and affordable, and it's bad because it's destroying the planet's resources, but it's also bad because it's just copying others, you know, other brands' uh, talent and into fast uh, marketing and fast manufacturing. Fashion can be a reflection of that. If you, if I, I'm sure you've gone or, or you've seen, you know, the, the Saint Laurent exhibition, or you've seen the work of Alexander McQueen and all of these beautiful fashion exhibitions, where fashion becomes a reflection of the work of art. It is the reflection of the genius of creativity of an extraordinary designer that then takes some of the most amazing know-how to build those beautiful gowns and beautiful universes that you can immerse yourself in. And it, it's pure art. It is pure art. And eventually it ends up in exhibitions in world-renowned museums, like the Met. Alexander McQueen was at the Met. I doubt that you would see fast fashion exhibitions at the Met. And the reason is that one is all about reproduction. It's like printing a poster. You have Van Gogh and you can print a poster of Van Gogh and you can own a poster of Van Gogh for $5. But if you want to buy a real Van Gogh, it is not about the price of the ink and of the paint or, or of the canvas. It's about the, the rarity and the expression of the genius of creative creativity of Van Gogh. So also, let's talk about pricing and luxury. A lot of people say, I bought something very expensive, it's luxury. Or, oh my God, it's overpriced, it's not worth it. Yeah, when you buy a beautiful handbag, and some people go into auction rooms today and are willing to pay $100,000 to buy a bag, is it speculation? Arguably yes, arguably no. Is it the recognition? of something extraordinary that has taken hours and hundreds of hours of know-how 
in order to build? Is it the celebration of the genius of creativity of a designer? Would all this like in art result in a price? This is my point of view. When you sell a, a luxury product that is expensive, you're also rewarding as part of the price, the rarity of that talent that is involved, the, you know, the right pay, the right time that you've requested, the, the store environment that is extremely hard to achieve and accomplish and very expensive to build, the training that you give, so many things that are not attached to the direct cost of good that goes into the piece. So when people say, oh, I bought something expensive, it must be luxurious. I think I would invite them to question the notion of price and bring it back to the price as the reward of something unique, rare, extraordinary, rather than just the price of something rare. I can do about anything, making make it rare and expensive and give it to you. If If desire is only triggered by rarity and price, then it's not going to be sustainable. But when desire is fueled by rarity, which is the expression of rare essential oils when it comes to fragrance or rare ingredients, unique know-how, unique creative geniuses, a beautiful ecosystem, and so on and so forth, then I think uh, it's worth paying the price. I, I just wondered what you thought about these tiers. You know, there seem to be tiers of luxury um, in, in the way that product is expressed and i wondered what you thought about you know that so if you've got a, a couture dress that's forty thousand dollars but then you've got by the same um maker a jacket that's two thousand dollars are they both still luxury because they come from the same house but they're both still luxury because they share the same values of creativity time quality etc but a but a couture gown is handmade and it might require forty thousand hours of work of hand and of unique skills, people that exist only, you know, maybe there are 10 people that can do this gone in the world. And so when you pay $40,000, you're also rewarding that, this uniqueness. And when you take, pay $2,000, you're rewarding the quality of something that would stay, you know, put when you wear it, when you wash it, that would be beautifully cut, beautifully made, but that is also designed by someone very talented that would give it a shape that is very unique. The, the reason why I have very low opinion on fast fashion is that they are copying everyone, even when it comes to fragrance. You know, in, in the fragrance world, when Francis creates a scent, I cannot protect it. There's no IP. There's no recognition of the notion of IP in fragrance. Something as beautiful as Baccarat Rouge 540, which is a new territory, unprecedented in the scent world, cannot be protected. So it's copied. It is copied by, you know, fast fashion houses. It is copied by mass marketing houses under the name of celebrities, and I can't do anything about it. And when people say, oh my God, I can buy a copy for 40 euros and, and why would I pay $300 you know, dollars to, to buy it? Well, yeah, of course you, you can do all that. You can buy a poster from, you know, from, uh, from Van Gogh and put it on the wall. But when you're doing that, you're also destroying an ecosystem that is enabling those beautiful things to happen because fast fashion is not going to enable that. What you, when you pay the price, you are paying hundreds of people that came together to make the story possible. You are paying for the talent that is extremely hard to get, that is extremely unique and rare. You are also contributing to celebrating the genius of creativity of Francis Kurjan and, and all of the people that work directly and indirectly for us. Whereas someone else is going to come with zero investment, zero investment. Take the sand, put it in a machine, copy it more or less they 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 are 
the copies out there are not good copies because they use low quality materials. They are not well finished, etc. But they're still copies. And so when you decide to buy a copy, it is your own choice and you have the right to do it, of course. But you are also contributing to validating the fact that someone else with zero investment can rob your ID, put them in a bottle or put them on a shirt or put them in a pant and sell them in mass market uh, way. But, but what I love about our world is that despite all that, we are seeing that luxury, genuine luxury houses are growing faster, bigger, stronger. Because I think people value that. People can distinguish very clearly between something that destroys nature in the way it's manufactured, something that has an awful carbon footprint, something that is mass marketed, something that is a real theft of IP. Uh, that comes into your home, you wear it three times, you throw it because it's, you know, completely dismantled. And then when you buy something where you decide to put the price that is handmade or made genuinely in Europe or with great quality, with attention to sustainability, with attention to the way you treat your teams, to CSR, to many other things where great designers and beautiful creative stories and ideas are behind, that all this creates meanings and, and that is worth investing in. Uh, and I think we've seen the luxury world grow to unprecedented level because I because of all that. It's all about yin and yang. Yeah. Now, it's interesting you say that because yesterday, in fact, I was reading about um, one of the um, chemist chains in, in, Lon- in, in, in London where you can buy Chanel Bleu for $4.99. It's a great copy of it. Or you can buy whatever the perfume is um, and you could buy a copy of it. And I was thinking, but... Um, with perfume, and I think, I don't know, this might just be me, with perfume, more than clothing, you can tell the difference because the quality of the fragrance is not going to last for a four ninety nine perfume. And it also doesn't have that same um, um, tactility to it because even though it's a fluid, you can feel the difference in a cheap perfume to an expensive perfume. Of course, it's about the ingredients that you use. It's about how they work together. It's about the quality. You know, when you decide to put ingredients that are the right ones, that are extremely precise and extremely beautiful, whether they are synthetic or natural, when you decide to put iris and, and select beautifully crafted, you know, iris and, and, and use beautiful materials and work hard to make them stay and diffuse it's a whole world. It's, it takes years. Sometimes we work over 18 months on a scent. Uh, this is all reflected in its quality and how it sits on your skin, its diffusion. Uh, you know, our scent, Baccarat Rouge 540, has been copied by so many brands, but whenever you smell them, they're cheap. Uh, they, they don't hold, etc. And Baccarat is still growing and it's still beautiful as in, you know, when you look at the, the beautiful Vuitton bags pattern and you see them sometimes sitting on the street with bad copies, this is not going to keep Vuitton from being one of the most beautiful luxury houses in the world. This is not going to keep people from buying a Kelly bag because a fast fashion uh, company decided to copy a Kelly bag and put it as part of their collection. People know the difference. Uh, and I think there's a market for everyone. But with education, with education and only with education, we can explain why. And I'd rather explain why and, and show to people uh, that when they go for the genuine product, they are going for an ecosystem. They are going for the right thing uh, and they do it naturally. Is much better than trying to fight the fast fashion and the copycats uh, by telling them, you know, you are 
uh, doing the wrong thing because I'm, I, there's a market for it and they've decided to do it. I'm hoping, my only hope is that in the years to come, we would be able to change the mindset of regulator and legislative bodies across Europe and the world so that they finally understand how perfumers work. They finally understand that creating a scent is not just about a formula, like, you know, having a recipe for a dish. It is pure creativity. A perfumer sees a story in her mind or his mind. They simply assemble essential oils, like an artist, like a, a composer would, would use notes to create music, like a painter would use colors to create and paint a canvas. Perfumers use different notes to create an emotion, and this emotion should be protected. It is absolutely shocking to me. It is absolutely unfair. I'm an activist. I was an activist when I decided to join Francis and change the take on the industry to show that perfumers could exist, that we were totally free to create, that we could come up with beautiful stories that could become global bestsellers and, and globally acclaimed without having to go through celebrity endorsement, mass marketing in millions of dollars and all that by simply allowing the genius of creativity to express itself freely. Now we want to protect the outcome of this creative genius through IP protection. I'm hoping we can do that. I wanted to um, ask you really about uh, craftsmanship because you refer to a lot about this idea of skill and craft, passing knowledge down. And I was just wondering how you thought um, or how you would define craftsmanship and if you think it's, you know, linked to luxury without, you know, without condition. Yes. As I told you, in, in, in my definition of luxury, there is the genius of creativity. There is unparalleled and high level of craftsmanship and a beautiful experience. A luxury product by definition is a beautiful product that is durable, well-crafted, that requires rare know-how that requires sophisticated execution that is not available widely. Craftsmanship is the only way and technique is the only way to express creative genius. You can be a creative genius. If you don't know how to express it, then no one is going to learn about it. Take the example of painting. Picasso used to say in order, first you have to master technique and then you can break the rule and the technique and go into emotion. Picasso used to be a classical painting. His dad put him at work. He was going from one contest to another competition, working light, working technique, refining his technique. And then one day he was able to go beyond that and express his creative genius through technique. So yes, for me, craftsmanship is a fundamental part of a luxury experience. Do you consider yourself a craftsman? Absolutely not. I am not a craftsman. I am uh, a businessman, I have a creative mind, I have a creative vision, I'm a people's leader, I'm an enthusiastic person. I don't know how to do much with my hands. When I was a young person, I loved drawing, I wanted to be an architect. My dad forced me into math, science, etc. So I have not exercised myself to become a craftsman. Could I become one? Absolutely yes. Do I have the passion? Absolutely yes. But craftsmanship is not something that falls on you. As I told you, you need hundreds of hours. Sometimes there are certain gestures that you have to repeat hundreds of times before you are able to, to, to execute on them properly. So I ask you that because 
do you think craftsmanship is only something that you do with your hands? Because I think of, so I would consider you to be a craftsman because you've crafted the success of this company, although you might not make something. Because I'm thinking about craftsmanship maybe in a slightly different way. That's why I was just asking if you, you know. And, and, and we go back to respecting words. Right, okay. Displacing them could displacing them could be a form of, you know, literature or expression. But just displacing them and putting them on yet about everything is also a way of disrespecting them because you end up diluting them. You end up forgetting what craftsmanship is and you end up going back to instant reward. Yet about anything is luxury because we have overused the word luxury. And when we go back to it, no, a $5 soap is not a luxury soap. Uh, and so again, with craftsmanship, I'm not a craftsman. I am an entrepreneur. I am a leader because my team recognizes me as so. I can come to you and say, hey, Sean, I'm a leader. But if my team doesn't respect me, if I haven't demonstrated an ability to have a vision, an ability to have a drive, an ability to... I say to my team, I am your leader. And, and I, I use this. I've taken this from Nelson Mandela. He used to say, I am your leader. I follow you. And I love that because what I say to my team, I am your leader. If we succeed, it is your success. I am like a maestro. I have an extraordinary pianist, a cello player. I have all of these instruments and all of these extraordinary musicians. If I'm a bad conductor, the music is going to be you know, lousy. It could be Mozart. It could be Bach. It could be whoever you want. It's going to be bad. But if I conduct you properly enough, if I empower you to be the best pianist, playing his best music alongside the best cello player, etc., then I've done a good job. If we fail, what I say to my team, if we fail, it is my sole responsibility. In failure, I'm the CEO, I'm the responsible man because I've done a lousy job. It's not your, your responsibility. You are talented. I've put you up for failure. So I'm not a craftsman. I'm a businessman. I'm a leader. I have a creative vision. I'm an entrepreneur. You can qualify me with many words, but craftsman is not one of them. You've expressed that because I think it's so important that words are, you know, are like you've said, you know, words are contained within the context in which they should be in, in, interpreted. Um, so I really love except the way. Except in literature, except in literature, yeah. when you are trying to use words to express other emotions and it's a form of style, it's beautiful. But in day-to-day in -day life, we have been displacing a lot the use of words to a point where words disappear and become nonsense. Technology is becoming, it's so in incredibly important in, a, in business operations. And I wondered how that impacts on your, um, you know, your role as the CEO. You know, technology has been, is, and will be part of our lives. And we are ever adjusting to technological changes. When I started my career, I had a pager. Uh, and I had a huge, massive computer sitting on my deck that required, you know, half an hour to execute a simple, uh, you know, exercise. Uh, today, we are, technology has to be at the service of mankind and not the other way around. Technology is there for us to be better, is there to, as a tool for us to go further. It is not a tool that will, will replace us. And, and so for me, technology is part of our day-to-day -day life. We love technology. We use technology all the time, but at the service of our creativity and at the service of our ideas. A lot of people ask me about artificial intelligence and how it's going to change the world. It is actually changing the world, but we have to use it to the, the, the right mean and to the right purpose. Can it create beautiful sense? Yes. 
Of course, I mean, artificial intelligence can create a scent, but will it replace the sensitivity of a perfumer? Maybe when a, perf when a machine is going to have the fear of death, the conscious of its own existence and the ability to engage in philosophical thinking, then maybe a machine will be able to create extraordinary things. And then this machine would have a part of humanity, but I'm not going to go in this direction. What I can tell you is we are using artificial intelligence, for example, today to help us understand why certain scents diffuse better than others. What combination of molecules make a scent diffuse more? We are using artificial intelligence. Actually, if you go on our website, we have an artificial intelligence model that helps you through our fragrance finder, select the scent of your choice. We've worked with someone at the CNRS in France, which is the government research body, a, a, a huge scientist, a woman that collaborated for almost a year with Francis on an idea that color can reflect emotion and can reflect scent families and scent combination. And through the association between words and color, we discovered that you can really get very close to the scent that you love in our fragrance wardrobe. And so if I invite our, our, uh, our, uh, the people listening to the podcast to go on our website and, and experience this fragrance finder, it is actually powered by science, artificial intelligence, and also by Francis, who uses a specific questionnaire when he does sense to bespoke customers. Uh, and so this is where science and mankind can come together to do something uh, meaningful. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. I, what's amazing is that this relationship between technology and luxury is becoming increasingly entwined. And then there's this conversation about is something that is handmade better than something that's machine made, which is, you know, you could... Um, oh, I don't know, stamp out um, a bag or a piece of jewelry and then have it assembled by machine or you can make it by hand. The machine is going to be really perfect, but it lacks the touch of hand, which is not dissimilar to the nose of a perfumer that, you know, the machine doesn't have. But it it's that constantly changing world that we're dealing with. And And when it comes to my take on things, I usually don't like to oppose one thing to another. A lot of time people want to know, is it better to use a machine or is it better to do it by hand? What is your most favorite thing? Is it white or is it black? Uh, life is more complicated than that. Life is more fluid than that. And I usually say to my team, one plus one equals three. Duality is not the only response because, you know, you're Sean, I'm Mark, and we're having a conversation. And this conversation is, th is number three because it's something that is not you. It's something that is not me. It's the combination of both of us. Science and technology and the work of hand, they can all live happily ever after together. And we don't need to oppose one to another. You can build a bag by having part of the bag done by a machine because it's going to hold longer, better, and part of the bag done by mankind because it's going to require this, you know, magical thing that a machine doesn't have. Eventually, what we want is to bring our best, the best thing to our customer. So the path to getting there is not important. What is important is the end game. I mean, I'm loving this conversation, Mark. I wish you know, I wish you could spend more time chatting. Um, I just wanted to ask you about sustainability and sustainable practice because it's becoming, you know, in, important to everybody. And I just wondered what your views on that were. It is a matter of uh, preserving planet Earth. I'm saying this with a lot of gravity. It is not a concept. It is not a theory. It is not, it is reality. 
it is reality. When you, when I live in my country home and when I come to Paris and my nose is almost bleeding and my eyes are itching because of pollution, uh, it is reality. When the weather is changing fast and dramatic, it is reality. When we look at how much mankind has evolved in such little time and overused planetary resources, it is not about a slide or a claim. It is reality. So for me, sustainability is critical. However, I'm very humble and I feel very small when I talk about this topic. When it comes to Maison Francesque Argent, we are working diligently and with passion and activism on trying to be as sustainable and as respectful of the environment and of people as we can. But we're just one small player in a much bigger ecosystem. And, you know, we can all accuse each other. We can all, you know, watch each other and say, to each other things, but together, only together, we can fix the sustainability issue. What I see today is many companies are innovating in the field of sustainability, but it has to be open source. You know, if you have a great technology to do something that is totally sustainable, that consumes 10 times less water, and that has a beautiful carbon footprint, and you keep it to yourself and you start monetizing it, you're not going to save planet Earth. You're using sustainability as a business model to make money. But sustainability is not a money-making business model. It has to be a second nature for all of us. So for me, innovation in sustainability has to be open source. As a small company, we are currently making a small revolution at Maison Francisco Jean that will start appearing to our customer mid-2024 to late 2024. We are resizing our packaging. We are removing excess packaging. We are going from, you know, we, we aim to reach 100% recycled plastic and no microplastic. We are removing anything that is not necessary. But now you would ask me, then why did you use things that are unnecessary uh, unnecessary to start with? Because I didn't have a choice. Because that was the supply chain that was made available to me. This is what suppliers had to give me. And unless we all change, things are not going to change. And finally, sustainability is also the responsibility of the customer that we all are. I am a customer and you're a customer. When you expect for a gift to have a bag and a ribbon and a box and another tissue paper inside the box and wrapping and then a bigger box to put a smaller box in which you have a bottle that is also inside another bottle. And all this has been fabricated by marketing for you to think that this is a privileged, beautiful moment of gifting. Okay. As long as we don't all change together, embracing an ecosystem of something that is more sustainable in nature by its component, the way it's manufactured, the way it's sourced, the way it's transported, the way it's made available to you. And then the quantity and the way it's made, I would love to sell to my customer, the quantity and the way it's sold to you, I would love to sell to my customer or to give them the ability to go with a bottle of perfume naked without anything, even without a stopper because they have a stopper at home. Are we ready for that? I'm not sure. Will we go there? I'm sure and confident that we are going there. It's going to take time. The only barrier to sustainability is the model. As long as companies think that it is a competitive edge, then we're going to fail. It is not a competitive edge. It has to be open source. It has to be available. Any great idea has to be available to the maximum amount of people. Now, you're going to tell me they had R&D and they paid a lot of money to get there. We, they have to be compensated. There needs to be 
a global body that acts as a compensator for R&D and so that innovation continues. But if you're one brand and you have innovation and you use it on your packaging and then planet is destroyed, then you're going to sell it to who? The difficult thing is greenwashing. The difficulty is when people want to use sustainability as an argument to sell you something and not as a necessity. This is the biggest difficulty that we have. Mankind has overcome many, many challenges and we will continue to overcome many challenges. It's about the operating model and it's about how we embrace it collectively uh, and not individually. So um, my last question to you is, what is your luxury? I love beautiful things. Uh, what is my luxury? I'm, I'm going to respond to your question differently. I'm going to distinguish between well-being and what I love and what I love in luxury. Uh, my well-being is about sharing beautiful moments with people that I love. It is about uh, overcoming challenges. I have a very creative and entrepreneurial spirit. I love having ideas, but I love even more bringing them to life. I always say ideas are 10% of the equation. It's your ability to bring them to life that makes the difference. And this excitement that I find in those 90% where you go from a blank page into something that is existing and beautiful uh, is part of what makes me happy. Luxury to me is what I said. I love beautiful product. I love, I think I feel so many great things when I'm facing the reflection of someone's genius of creativity. I love art and I'm a, a beginner, but I'm an art collector and I look into, you know, modern and contemporary art. And there are so many artists that have astounding talent. Uh, I love, I'm curious about, you know, the world. I'm curious about discovering new territories, new culture. I'm a foodie. I love eating, uh, uh, which is a problem at my age because this is where, you know, your test results start showing, you know, very ugly things such as cholesterol and, and all of the risks that are associated with, you know, uh, <laughs> aging. Uh, but I love eating and, and I feel that it's a journey. It's a, it's a feast of the senses. So anything that is associated with creativity, art, adventure, people, uh, is something that uh, makes me happy. Okay, brilliant. Um, Mark Chai, thank you so much for joining me on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you so much for all of these interesting questions. Mark, thank you for joining us. And thank you to our sponsors, Intellect Books. And of course, thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can catch up on all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favorite listening platform. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.